Well, certainly, one of the greatest descriptions of love ever given, and maybe the greatest description of love ever given, is certainly not going to be on a poem, not on a piece of uh, poetry, certainly not on a, on a song. It's found in the epistles when Paul said, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He said, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 describes how members in the body of Christ should operate in terms of love. That's the context. And there are books and there are songs about love, but nothing close to the description that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Of course, that chapter goes on to describe what that love looks like, that love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, or another translation, rude. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. It says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And then it says that it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And the last phrase is that love never fails. In fact, that's the NASB and the ESV. I think it's love never ends because I think Paul's point is that the gifts will cease in and of themselves as we get into the new heavens and the new earth, but love never ends. Love never fails. Relationships never come to an end. And these verses contain the most complete description of love I believe ever penned, obviously. It is God's own definition of love. But the passage that we turn to this morning, look into John 15, may be one of the greatest promises in Scripture ever penned by our Lord on the love relationship within the Trinity and the love relationship with us. It describes the love relationship to the Father, the Father's relationship to the Son, and the saint's love relationship to the Savior. And really, it's gift-wrapped in love. Let me read the text for you. I'll read from 9 down through 17. Jesus said, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit 
and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father, or ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. It is a passage wrapped in love. You see the statement in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he tells you to abide in my love. And then that frame, the last verse, at least in that paragraph, is these things I command you that you love or will love one another. It's a crucial text for our church. It's a crucial text Even as Shay mentioned for our discipleship, both of our students and adults. Of course, as we come into John chapter 15, we're looking at an extended metaphor, a metaphor of the vine and the branches. The overarching theme running all the way down through verse 17 is abide in me. It's the ideal of abide. It's the idea of bearing fruit. We noted that the word abide or the word remain Uh, functions here just in this brief section 10 times and then secondly that word bearing fruit is mentioned eight times in fact three times just in verse 2 is it mentioned he says every branch in me that does not bear fruit he says he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit So this theme of abiding and this theme of bearing fruit, and the truth is, is as believers, we will bear fruit. There will be fruit on the vine. In fact, Jesus has already been telling us that he prunes, if you will, the believer in verse 2 and 3 to bear more fruit. So if you're bearing fruit, the Lord Jesus wants you to bear more fruit and he prunes, if you will, that vine, your life through trials and oftentimes physical suffering that you would bear more fruit. So not only does he prune believers, but we've noticed that he purges unbelievers who bear no fruit. In fact, he purges them. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The results of not bearing fruit are disastrous. It's not just that your works will be burned up. It is a description that we described a couple weeks ago of hell. It is a description of the burning fire for those who bear no fruits. And so he purges he, he, he purges these unbelievers. But thirdly, he promises blessings for those who do abide in him. And that was the function and where we left off in verses 7 and 8. Now, just a word on abide. The word means to stay. The, the word means to remain. It's a crucial term for us. And there's both a position positional reality to that, that if you're in Christ, you are abiding in him. But there's a practical truth that it's an imperative for you to abide in him. We noted first that that word abide means to believe in him as your savior, as stated in John 6, 56. In other words, what does it mean to abide? Well, first you have put your trust. You have leaned all of your faith upon him. You have believed in him. Secondly, we noted from John 8, 31, that it's to persevere in him. It's to remain in him. It is not just a 
quick decision, but you're persevering in believing. You're dependent on him. You enter into a relationship with him, and that relationship is something that continues. You abide in him, and he abides in you. You're attached to him. He's the the root, if you will, and our branch is what is attached to him, and your fruit comes out of your attachment to him. You're dependent upon him. It is a, a present tense term. You're abiding with him daily, and so far from New Testament theology being a decision you make, it describes a living, breathing relationship with him. And then we noted thirdly, and we'll see this today, that you obey him. That if you're actually abiding in him, you are obeying him, and you're doing so with the Holy Spirit's help. In fact, you remember, look at verse 6. He gave that disastrous result of what happens when you bear no fruit. You are put out, if you will, to the fire, and you are burned. And what he's going to do now in 7 and 8 is describe for us what happens when you abide in Christ. This is what happens, verse 6, when you bear no fruits. He gathers, he withers, you're burned, and you go to destruction. It is a powerful statement, and I took you through all the gospel passages that recognize that. But you might ask, what happens? What are the blessings when you abide? Look at verse 7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I want you to notice something. He says in verse 4, if you back up, he said, abide in me and he says, I in you. But here you'll note in verse 7, he said, if you abide in me, and now he says in verse 7, and my words abide in you. So whatever abiding is, it's to be alongside his word. And so here, abide in you, when Jesus said that in verse 4, is substituted for the phrase, in verse 4, I am in you. He says, for now, our Lord will tell us that he abides in us, and for him to abide in us, his words abide in us. That's so vital, because whatever you lock into your mind on what you think abiding is, it's staying, it's believing, it's remaining, it's persevering, it's obeying, but here you're seeing that in verse 7, it's substituted that my words abide in you. In fact, just look over in John chapter 17, just to note just a few. This is why he says this. He said, I have manifested your name, I'm in 17.6, to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and here's the description, and they have kept your word. It is the definition of a Christian, is one that he or she keeps his word. In other words, you obey the Lord. Look at 17 and verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and that they have believed that you have sent me. I love that phrase. I have given them the words. So to abide in Christ 
is to, in this verse, verse 7 back in 15, is to abide in his word. Glance down at chapter 17 and verse 14. He says, I am coming to you. He says, in these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That's 13. I have given them, 17, 14, your word. In other words, if you're abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are abiding in his word. Now look back at the text in 15.7. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and here's the fruit and the promise and the blessing, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, he begins to describe what this blessing looks like, and it looks like here answered prayer. You ask an open-ended extension, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. In other words, it's the fruit of answered prayer. And obviously, this is not some carte blanche. I'll show you this in a minute, uh, that you can ask anything. In that sense, you can. But it's not a name-it-and-claim-it verse, and I'll show you why. In fact, look back at John chapter 14 and verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you... Remember that? Whoever believes in me will do the works that I will do, and greater works these he will do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there you see that promise again, whatever you ask, this I will do, but it's qualified, is it not? Whatever you ask, he says, in my name. In other words, you're praying consistent with the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, look back over to John chapter 15 in verse 16. There we read earlier, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, the ideal of remain, so that, here's the promise, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So you're praying with what is consistent with the person of God, with the personality of God, with the revelation of God. And so he will give it to you. I think to me it makes sense, doesn't it? If you abide in Christ and Christ's word abides in you, if you obey his commandments, if you ask in his name, if you do what pleases him, you will receive. That is the promise. In other words, you begin to pray consistently with his will. I mean, I'm so glad that he extends this promise to you, to me. You know, he didn't say to get into the Lord's house and to get into the Lord's kingdom, you need to be able to run a four-minute mile, okay? It's not what he says. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can have a fruitful prayer life. I, maybe I said that about the four-minute mile. When I played college basketball, we had to run a six-minute mile to get inside the gym. And you couldn't get into the gym until October or some, sometime. Or, um, and so to get in, you had to be able to be in shape before you got into the practice. And we had to run a six-minute mile. But here the Lord doesn't give us any kind of qualification. He doesn't say you have to have an IQ of a certain degree. He doesn't even say that you have to be healthy. Some of you may not be healthy. But he does say this. If he abides in you in his word and you abide in him, 
one of the promises here is far from being torn off as a branch and becoming unfruitful, you will have the joy of answered prayer. In fact, it says in 1 John 3, whatever we ask, we receive from him. It says this, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So you can begin to see it's an open qualification in prayer, whatever you ask. But I'm reading here in this text in John 15 that you have to ask in his name. And in 1 John 3, you're to keep his commandments and you're to do what pleases him. And John the Apostle says in 5.14, this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and we know that we have the request that we have asked in him. And so there you're asking in his name. You're obeying his commandments. You're doing what pleases him. You're asking according to his will. And here's the promise of John 15. It says that whatever you ask consistent with his person, whatever you ask consistent with his purpose, whatever you ask consistent with his plan, this is the promise, he will do. What do you mean his person, his purpose, his plan? Well, you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom, what? Come, thy will be done. What Jesus is saying here is this, as you abide in him, as his words abide in you, as you pray consistent with his name, hallowed be thy name. As you pray with consistent with his purpose, thy kingdom come. As you pray here consistent with his plan, thy will be done, you will see prayer answered. You say, well, Scott, what's he talking about? He's talking about this. Your prayer will be so much after the heart of God that your prayer will be filled with his person, with his purpose, and with his plan. That as you begin to line yourself up with the purposes of God, it won't be about you. It will be about your Father, and it will be about his kingdom, and it will be consistent with his plan. In fact, look at the stunning statement in 15.8. He said, by this, because of verse 7, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I love that. My Father is glorified. Doxazo is the word. It means to magnify God. It means literally to elevate God. It means to esteem Him in the esteem of others. Now, God's glory, I wrote my dissertation on this, he doesn't need you to glorify him in this sense. His glory is intrinsic to himself. God is a God of glory. The psalmist says that he is the king of glory. But as such, we esteem and magnify him in the esteem of others. And that's what it means to glorify him. In fact, the Westminster Catechism said, What is the chief end of man and the chief end of man is to glorify God. And we glorify God here in this text by bearing fruit. But what's interesting about verse 8 is that God glorifies himself. I won't take you through that in the Gospel of John. He does that through the work of his Son. But here what this is saying is that God is glorified by the disciples that they bear much fruit... 
and so prove to be his disciples. God is glorified in answered prayer, and when that prayer is answered, you bear fruit, and when you bear fruit, you glorify and esteem the person of God. And we said that that fruit is both attitude fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and it's action fruit by what you do with your life. But what happens here, though, in the text, and you might even ask the question, what happens when you abide in Christ? Certainly, we saw the one branch is gathered, withered, burned, and cast away. But the question could be asked is, what happens to you or when you abide in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what he gives and what follows from 5, 15, if you will, 9 down through 17 is the pillars, I call them, of our relationship with Christ when you abide in him. In fact, I sat down this morning for breakfast and I sat on a stool over the counter and I looked underneath the stool and sure enough, that stool had four legs coming down. Obviously, it didn't have two. I would be rocking. Three, it wouldn't be quite as strong. But as I looked, it had four pillars. And here what I'm describing and what the Lord Jesus Christ is describing is the four pillars of our relationship with Christ when you abide in him. And we'll look at this this week and in maybe the week to come. First, I would say it is a relationship, whether you get this or not, you'll get it in the weeks to come, that's established in love. It's a relationship, and it's established, built on love. Secondly, it's a relationship that is shared in community. In other words, when you abide in him, he establishes you in that love, but you are sharing that relationship in community with one another where it says to love one another. Then thirdly, it is a relationship that is honored in friendship where he tells us we're his friends. He said in verse 15, he said, I have called you friends. Very interesting. But he said in verse 14, you are my friends. He carefully qualifies it, doesn't he? When he says, if you do what I command you. But it's established in love. It's shared in community. It's honored in friendship. And let me say this, fourthly, that pillar, that fourth pillar is a relationship that's grounded in his sovereignty. In verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. All of these are the pillars of our relationship. And I begin to think, certainly, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the greatest descriptions, if not the greatest description ever penned in the epistles. But I bring you here to this relationship that is really formed and framed in the context of love. And I found it almost just mind-boggling. I don't want to say almost. I couldn't believe some of the things that I was reading. So here's what I want to do with you this morning. Let's look at just the first pillar, okay? The first pillar. It is, number one, a relationship that is established in love. And I will run from verse 9 down through verse 11. It is a relationship established in love. And this relationship that is established in love is revealed in three 
truths in those scriptures, okay? Let's look at the first, tr- first truth even now. It's the father's love for the son. Look at this love relationship. The father's love for the son. Look at verse 9. He said there, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then he'll tell you to abide in my love. But at that opening phrase, as the father has loved me. Here is the triune relationship with God. Here is the first person of the triune God, God the Father. And it says that God the Father, you can see it there in verse 9, loves God the Son. Jesus said there, he has loved me. It is a wonderful truth of the Trinity that God the Father loves the Son. So what does it mean that he loves the son? Well, let me show you. Look over in John 17. Look over in verse 23. It repeatedly says this in the text. He's praying in his high priestly prayer, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, 1723, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you've loved them, speaking of you. But he says, even as, you see that, underline that, You loved me. Whatever you think in terms of the Trinity, understand that there is a perfect love relationship with the three parts, if you will, the three personalities, I should say, of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. You say, how long has he loved the Son? Look at 1724. He's praying, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me that where I am. He said, to see my glory that you have given me. Watch this. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so there the word loved, you can read it in the English, is put in the aorist tense. He's loved me. Loved me in eternity past. Love me from all eternity. That before the incarnation, the Son, the second person of the Trinity was with God the Father. And God the Father loved God the Son. He loved him from that point from all eternity. There was never a time when he did not love the Son. In fact, look down at 1726. He said, I made known to them your name. In other words, your person, you're praying in his name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. But the love with which you have loved me. And so here is the father's love for the son. And it's not only a love for the son, certainly in his pre-incarnate glory, his pre-incarnate state from the foundation of the world, He loves him in his earthly ministry as well. Let me show you just a few verses. Go back to John chapter 3 for a moment. And I'm illustrating here that the father loves the son. And he not only loved him even before his incarnation, he certainly loves him in his earthly ministry. It says there um, in verse 34, 334, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. And then this in verse 35. The father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. In other words, he loves the son and he's given all things into his hand. You say like what? Like the next verse. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. 
So he's not only loved him from all eternity, but even in the incarnation and in his ministry, the father loves the son so much that he has given all things into his hands. In fact, look over at John chapter 5 in verse 20. It says there, for the father, I love this statement, loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. In other words, he loves the son and every insight of the father's glory and intellect and plan and purpose is being revealed through the son, if you will. He's showing him all things that he is doing. In fact, look over at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Again, you have these statements that the father loves the son, so we're building our Trinitarian theology here. But it says in 1017, Jesus said, actually back up to 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, that's you. In other words, my sheep are before me and my disciples, but I have other sheep not of this fold that I must bring them in. They will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock with one shepherd for this reason The Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And so he loves him from all eternity, but he loves him because Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, is completely obedient. So here's the teaching of Scripture. The Father loves the Son. Do you remember earlier and back in Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 1 verse 11, at his very baptism, Jesus was baptized certainly not for the removal of sin but to identify with all righteousness but as he's at his baptism a voice comes from heaven it's the voice of God and it says you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased so the father loves the son the father is in union if you will with the son remember at his transfiguration later in Mark's gospel in chapter 9 verse 7 a voice came out And the voice said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. That word that came out then is a word that needs to be heard today. But the father calls his son, his son of the beloved or his beloved son. Now listen, it doesn't say it right here as you go back to John 15. But we know that not only does the father love the son, but we also know that the son loves the father. In fact, I'll show it to you. Look back in chapter 14 in verse 31. But I do, he says there, as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. In other words, you have a perfect relationship within the triune God. The Father loves the Son. Here in 1431, the Son loves the Father. But here... We've seen the Father's love for the Son, but there's something amazing in this text. Look back at 15.9. He says there, as the Father has loved me, look at the next phrase in 15.9, so have I, what does it say, loved you. Wow. Here is a relationship, first pillar, established in love. The Father loves the Son, But here it says, so I have loved you. So secondly, here's the son's love for the saints. The father loves the son, but the son 
speaking to you, loves the saints. He says, I have loved you. In other words, it's, it's, it's beyond human description. He loves you with the same love by which the Father loved him. That's what it says. He, he says, as the Father's loved me, he says in verse 9, he says there, so that I have I loved you. God the Father loves, the son, loves God the Son, and God the Son loves you with the same love. Can you plumb the depth of that? I mean, we should have no identity crisis here. Your identity is not bound up in volleyball. It's not bound up in soccer. It's not bound up in wrestling. It's not bound up in soccer. It's not bound up in your business. It's not bound up in any sport or any kind of group. Just walk out of the building, put your head on the pillow tonight, and understand this, that the way the Father loved God the Son, God the Son loves you. It's an incredible thought. There can be no greater love than that. It is love without beginning. It is love without end. It is love without measure. It is love without change. It's vast. It's broad. It's wide. It's the immeasurable love of God. I mean, it it even defies our mind when he said, God the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And then you realize if you're in Christ, it says in Ephesians 1-4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You are loved by both God the Father and here, God the Son. You say, well, in what way does it say that Christ loved us? Well, he says it there in 15.9, so I have loved you. But look back just for a second, two chapters at 13.1. Remember when he began to wash the disciples' feet, or at least it was the feast of Passover. It says in 13.1, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. I love this phrase. He loved them all the way to the end. In other words, he loves you, if you will, to the max. But he loved you, and he loved you all the way to the end. He's never going to let go of you. In fact, look at chapter 13, same chapter in verse 34. Do you remember that? When he gave us the new commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So listen, you are loved by the Father. You'll see that in a moment. But here, you're loved by the Son. Remember Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than that one would lay down his life for his friends. That is exactly what he has done for you. He has laid down his life for you. In fact, every command for you to love another comes out of the command that God the Father has loved God the Son and God the Son loves you. And when you're commanded to love another, you're commanded out of the fact that he's loved you. In fact, it says in Ephesians 5, 2, to walk in love just as Christ loved us And gave himself up for us. And so Christ has loved us. As the Father loved me, Jesus says, I have loved you. Then doesn't it just then at that point make sense? The last phrase in verse 9. Look at it. Look at 15.9. 
He says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And then he said this. Do you see it there? The last phrase, abide in his love. In other words, the Father loves the Son. The Son loves you. He therefore, by the authority of the word of God, is when he penned this scripture, is as fresh of the inspiration as he gives it to you. He tells you this morning, this is your charge, to abide in his love. And you might ask the question, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, what does that mean to abide? I mean, I'm supposed to abide in him. I'm connected to him. I believe in him. I persevere in him. I'm daily dependent on him. I'm in his word. But what does this mean to abide in his love? What's he talking about? I think some people would think this is somewhat mystical today. It might include for some people a prayer walk or some kind of journey that you go in. It might even be a bit emotional, whatever that means, as though there's some kind of abiding in his love that is emotional, that it's mystical, that it's ethereal. Well, what does that mean to abide in his love? I'm so glad that scripture interprets the scripture. It's the next verse. I'll show you what abide in his love is. Look at verse 10. He says, if... You keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. So I take you to the third and final truth is the Father's love for the Son, number one. The Son's love for the saints. And let me say this, the believer's love for the Savior. The believer's love for the Savior. The Father loved the Son and He gave Him all things. The Father loved the Son and, and He showed Him all things. The Son loved the Father in that He obeyed the Father's command in dying in your place. And you will thirdly, in this love relationship, demonstrate your love for the Savior. This is what it says. By keeping His commands. Let me just be really clear to you here. This is how we abide in His love. Our love for the Savior is proved in our obedience to his word. Look at it again in 1510. If you keep his commandments, you will abide in his love. You say, well, Pastor Scott, how can I tell the difference? Well, you've got two branches that are mentioned here. One branch bears no fruit. And it's cast aside, it's burned, it's withered, it's, it's judged, if you will. But another branch bears fruit. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And he'll prune it even more to, to bear more fruit. And then he tells us to abide in his love. And what does that mean? It means to obey him. Obey him. In fact, look back just one chapter. This is so picturesque. Let the word interpret the word. Look back one chapter in chapter 14 and verse 15. I'll just touch on it. He says, if you love me, you will keep my what? Commandments. I, I don't, you don't gain his love by keeping his commandments. But if you love him, and if there's a dynamic relationship with him. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Glance down at 14, verse 21. Whoever, anyone in here, any man, any woman at Grace Church, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who, what? Loves me. You can say you love him. 
You can talk about a decision. You can talk about whatever you've done in years past. But if you love me, Jesus said, you're going to keep my commandments. Look at verse 21. It says, and he who loves me, I love this phrase, will be loved by my father. If you obey his word, Christ's word, then you'll be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, I love that, will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit take up personal presence in the heart and life of that man or woman who has come to Christ. What a genuine, I would even call it experiential relationship that we have with God. So let me say this. You say, do we have an example of keeping his commandments? Thank you for asking. Look back at the text in 1510. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And then here's the example. Here's the pattern. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Wow. In other words, He's calling you to live in obedience to this book even as his son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and lived in obedience to the Father's commands. And this is all over the scripture. In fact, we've looked at John where he said, I only came to do what pleased the Father. I only came in John 6, 38 to obey his word. He said, I did what my father commanded and I willingly laid down my life. In fact, just look back at 1431. We've read it before. He said, but I do as my father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. So here, his love for the father, don't miss this, was demonstrated in perfect obedience. And I would say that our love is to be demonstrated in progressive obedience. In other words, if you're involved in a love relationship, here's the first pillar. It's established in love. He established it with you. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves you. And if you or your grandchild or your sibling really love the Father, they're going to be obeying His commandments, not perfectly, but let me say it, progressively okay he still has to prune us that we'd bear more fruits but here it's very clear and I'm making a distinction here that your love elicits obedience and our obedience to him demonstrates love in other words it's the love of God that elicits our obedience to him and demonstrates that love and you don't want to reverse that order His love is not the result, that's what I'm trying to say, of our obedience. Our obedience is the result of our love for him. And so because you love him, you want to obey him and you want to please him. Obedience, if you will, springs from our love for God and is a response to his love for us. It is never that we obey God in order to receive love. Rather, we obey God because we have already received his love. And so if you love him, you obey him. And so this obedience comes to us from that. Let me just show you something. Look over in John's other writing that we've exposited from, 1 John. 
Same man, same apostle, right? He makes these kind of statements, and I'm illustrating here that the believers are to obey the Son and that we love the Savior. But remember 1 John chapter 2 in verse 4, and he's always talking about what someone says. But he says, whoever says, I know him, in 1 John 2, 4, but does not keep his commandments is a, what? He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. You can say all you want. You can be baptized numerous times, okay? You could even come to church weekly. But if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in him. Watch this in verse 5, 2, 5. Whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. In other words, the love of God is matured when you keep his word. By this, he says in 2, 5, by this we may know that we are in him. Beloved, I would say that talk is cheap. And you'll really find out where you are when the worries of the world and the comfort of the world and the deceit of riches come in. Sometimes it can choke the word. But here he says, whoever keeps the word, the love of God is perfected. Look over just First John, the next chapter, chapter 3, in verse 24. The language is a little different. It's not about us abiding in Christ. But he says in 3.24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. I like that. There's our word abide. There's our word remains. It's when you keep his commandments that you remain in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In other words, that's not abiding in Christ. That's abiding in God. But the principle is the same. Look maybe over just to the next chapter in 1 John chapter 5. In verse 2, 3, he's using similar language. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. How, John? When we love God and what? (laughs) Obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And I love this. And his commandments are not, what? Burdensome. In other words, the father loves the son The Son loves you. And in this trilogy of the relationship, believers love the Savior. And they show their love for the Savior not by raising hands, not by going to a concert, okay, and getting emotional, not by going to a retreat. We trust that God can use those. You show your love for the Savior in a continual pattern of obedience. Now listen, do not think in terms here of perfection, We still need to be pruned. And I would even say be careful of not producing obedience from legalism. Be careful of not producing uh, obedience from fear. But we obey him because we love him and desire to abide in him. And I don't know about you. um, I obey the Lord because I love the Lord, right? You know, this isn't some slavish fear here. It's be, you love him and you want to honor him. I think Calvin got it right. He said the obedience which believers give him is not the cause of his continuing love to us, but it is the effect of his love. I like that statement. So here, bearing fruit 
is not the ground of how you become a disciple, but it is the result of a relationship with Christ, and it is the proof of discipleship. So here's this pillar, this relationship established in love, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for the saints, and we could say the believer's love for the Savior. You say, well, Scott, what does that result in? I mean, I mean, go back to John 15. I mean, I'll obey him, but maybe you're in ninth grade. Maybe you're in eighth grade. Maybe you're in 11th grade. You're in 12th grade. Maybe you're a mom. I mean, maybe you're just saying, is, is that all what it is that we just obey him? Well, I, we, we obey him because we love him. But would you look at the end game result in 1511? Jesus says there, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be joyful. Not in a circumstance. He wants you to be full of joy. Full of joy. Complete with joy. But the context is clear. How do you get that? Well, I think it's clear. Just as the Son obeyed the Father's command and rested in fullness of joy, so too the believer who obeys his word won't find this fearful, won't find this outward legalism. He or she is going to be filled to joy to the brim. So I guess I'm compelling you. I am just reasoning with you if you want fullness of joy, then walk in obedience to his commands. Amen? I mean, if we could just get that across to the 1030 window today that Shay spoke about. I mean, you'd think most people, their joy wouldn't be here. If you want to find out where some people's joy is, just watch the Oscars. I mean, frankly, it seems like it's, and by the way, I didn't watch them, but it always seems like it's more about the dress and the appearance that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about an inward full joy. Listen to what Carson said. Listen to this. He said, our deepest joy springs from periods in this life when we obey Christ with unreserved commitment. I love that. Some of you might say, well, pastor, I don't have joy. Well, let me ask you, are you obeying him? You say, well, uh, pastor, that's not what I was asking. I just, I'm, I don't have joy, but... If you don't have joy, you might want to look right here. He says that it, it, it happens best with unreserved commitment. He said when some difficult decision with complex moral overtones thrust itself upon him and he rejects various sinewy trails in favor of an unqualified adherence to the highest path for Jesus' sake, then he experiences joy that leaves him speechless. But then Carson said this. No one is more miserable than the Christian who for a time hedges in his obedience. He does not love sin enough to enjoy its pleasures. And he does not love Christ enough to relish holiness. He perceives that his rebellion is iniquitous, but his obedience seems distasteful. He, he does not feel at home any longer in the world, but the memory of his past associations and tantalizing lyrics of his old music prevent him from singing with the saints. Carson said, he is a man most to be pitied, and he cannot forever remain ambivalent. 
Listen, if you want fullness of joy, then be like the Savior who kept his Father's word and walked in obedience to him. Listen, I want you to know that joy, and that joy comes here apart from circumstance. It comes when the saints love the Savior in obedience.